Today on Abounding Grace from Ed Taylor. Christianity is based on what Jesus Christ has done. The gospel, the good news, isn't about how hard you're supposed to work or how many major changes you need to make in your life. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't based on us working hard or reading a lot or singing loud. It's just the opposite. The gospel of Jesus Christ is all about my insufficiency and God's sufficiency to change my life, that I can walk by faith and I can trust him no matter what, not because of what I've done, because if, if salvation was dependent upon me or you, we wouldn't make it. We, we just wouldn't make it. We don't have what it takes. This is amazing grace. Thanks for tuning our way. This is Abounding Grace, and we'll hand things over to Pastor Ed Taylor in a moment, who today returns to 1 Kings 8. As you may recall, when we left you yesterday, the temple has just been completed, and now it's time to dedicate it to the Lord. As we begin at verse 14 today, Solomon blesses the congregation and then turns to prayer. In 1 Kings chapter 8, I think there's something like 66 verses. And we covered 13. Not bad. I really thought and prepared, and I had not, you know, I had the right amount of notes, and not like I had an overabundance of notes, but we went off in different directions that God had for us, really emphasizing that Ark of the Covenant, that box that was four by two by two. It was made out of acacia wood, overlaid in gold. The lid on top of it had the two angels or the two cherubim. And the typology in it was glorious. We looked at the typology of acacia wood and, and how the acacia wood really spoke of Jesus Christ in many ways. But wood also speaks of, of humanity. And that wood was covered with gold that speaks of royalty or deity. And over and over again, that Ark of the Covenant is representative of Jesus Christ. As we know that our Lord was 100% man and 100% God. He was both wood overlaid with gold of two natures uh, and beautiful, 100% God, 100% man. The only time we read of God saying that he would meet at a specific location was at the Ark of the Covenant. This was the place where it would be the symbolic, as, as now here in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon is placing it there. It's being placed into the temple and the temple is being dedicated. This would represent the enthronement of Yahweh as Israel's king. That Israel's God now has entered into his house that Solomon built, that his dad was unable to build. Fulfillment of God's promise. Telling King David, you will not build for me a house, but your son will. And so David got together all the supplies or much of the supplies ready for Solomon so that by the time Solomon comes, now he's fulfilling the word of God. And this box in the life of the old covenant was God's solution to the gulf between man and himself. It was the place where their failures 
were covered. It was the place where God manifested his presence in a localized way, where he accepted the blood that atoned for the sins of the people, according to Leviticus chapter 16. Blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. That's what the lid was called, the mercy seat, so that the law inside that once condemned would be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. A beautiful picture and type of the coming new covenant that Jesus would be the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So don't miss this. God is saying, I will meet you, and I will speak with you, and I will give you, which always reminds us in our relationship with God, even as we were praying in our give 10 time in Galatians, in our relationship with God, listen, God is always the initiator. It's always God reaching down. It's quite the opposite of religion. Religious systems that are man-made are the opposite. And what I mean by that is that man is always trying to pull God down and cause God to respond to him. So I'll do all my good works so that God might bless me. That's you being the initiator. I will follow all the rules and regulations of this particular church or this particular religion. Why? So that I might receive some benefit from God. That's you initiating. But the Bible teaches us over and over again that God is the initiator and you and I are the responders. God is saying to us in the mercy seat. God is saying to us in the Ark of the Covenant. God is saying to us in the wood of the cross where the very Son of Man, the Son of God, is hanging on the cross. He is saying to us that I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. That's why Galatians 3.3 is so vital where in verse 1 of Galatians 3, he, Paul says, you foolish Galatians. Now, that, that can't be the beginning of a good conversation with someone, especially your pastor. You're sitting there, and you go, hey, Paul, how you doing? You foolish person. You know it's not going to end very well. I mean, maybe it's, it's not beginning very well. Hopefully it ends well. But there are those seasons, aren't there, where we, we need to be told that our actions are not wise. That's, the, that's what foolish means, that we're not walking in the wisdom of God. We're foolish We aren't walking in the fear of the Lord. We're not walking in the wisdom of the Lord. Oh, foolish Galatians. And then he jumps down to verse 3. Are you so foolish? You know, first in verse 1 he says, who's bewitched you? Who's ripped you off from the simplicity of grace? And then by the time verse 3 goes, do you really think? Do you really believe that what God started, you can finish? Do you really believe that? Do you really think that what God started when you were dead in your trespasses and sins and when you had no hope, when everybody had written you off, where you were lonely and empty and struggling, when you were strung out, when you were angry, out of control, when you were wandering around aimlessly, and on and on that list goes, do you really think that after God initiated, after he entered into your life, after he drew has taken you and drawn you to himself by the power of his Holy Spirit and sent person after person that's prayed for you and put you at just the right church at just the right time with just the right message. Do you really think that after God gives you new birth, he gives you, he, he, he tells you, hey, you know what? It, it's, you have to be born again. He says, you, you want to be saved? You want to be in a relationship with me? You have to be born again. And remember the religious Nicodemus, what did he say? What? I have to be born. I have to crawl back into my mother's womb? I mean, that's how we would think about it. Jesus is speaking life to Nicodemus, and and he's speaking spirit because his words are spirit and life, Jesus says. But what does Nicodemus respond with? The natural? 
I can't, I'm not, I'm not going back into my mom's womb, man. That ain't going to happen. That, that's just weird. I mean, that's a weird statement. That's a, you know, they, they have books written, a hard statement to Jesus, but I've never seen that statement in there. That's a hard statement. You want to be saved? Be born again. And immediately you think, go back into my mom and come back out? That ain't, I'm going to be born again? I mean, I, I don't fault Nicodemus for thinking that. I think if you and I were hearing for Jesus, we'd probably think the same thing. Because what Jesus was telling them was outside of their thought process. And he was saying, in order to have a true relationship with the Father, life has to come from outside of you. It has to come from the outside. God has to initiate it. And what is that? how is that relevant today? How does the ark speak to us today? Well, listen, Christianity is not based on what man can do. Christianity is based on what Jesus Christ has done. The gospel, the good news, isn't about how hard you're supposed to work or how many major changes you need to make in your life. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't based on us working hard or reading a lot or singing loud. It's just the opposite. The gospel of Jesus Christ is all about my insufficiency and God's sufficiency to change my life, that I can walk by faith and I can trust him no matter what, not because of what I've done, because if, if salvation was dependent upon me or you, we wouldn't make it. We, we just wouldn't make it. We don't have what it takes. We, we couldn't keep ourselves saved. But salvation is dependent upon the author and the finisher. And we don't want to have it backwards. We want to have it forwards. So with that, let's pick up in verse 14, because we do have quite a ways to go. But let's finish off our chapter as the king turns around. We introduced to the Ark of the Covenant, and now he turns around in verse 14, and he blesses the whole congregation of Israel while all the congregation of Israel was standing. And then he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David, and with his hand has fulfilled it, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son, who shall come from your loins, he shall build the house for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke. And I have filled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have made a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord in which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Solomon turns around to the people after he was facing the temple. He turns around and he blesses the congregation on this momentous occasion. He reminds them of the history. He shares his testimony. Your testimony is so powerful, what God has done in your life, what God has done in your family. Just thinking, you know, my dad really wanted to do this, but God said no. But it was still good that he wanted to do it. And God said, no, David, you're not going to do it, but your son's going to do it. And, and, and all of this interaction with me, my dad, and God, and my family, Solomon says, it's coming to pass right in front of you. You are a part of the promise. You are seeing the promises of God. And that's just really encouraging for us. And I hope you're encouraged when you see the promises of God fulfilled in people around you. 
Now, I know you could take the opposite effect and you could say, well, you know, the Lord's just not keeping my promise. He's not keeping his promise to me. And all I am is waiting and waiting. But then my friend goes over here and does this. And my friend was over here and does this. And then I see my friend over there and woe is me. But it's not about you. It's about the Lord. And if God is fulfilling his promise all around you while you're waiting on him to work in your life, listen, all around you, all around us, we're a family. And we should be happy when the Lord's working in his family, sharing our testimonies, what God has done, what he wants. Hey, man, this is my family. This is where I came from. But now, listen, you are watching God do the work. You're watching it. It's happening. This is the promise of God being fulfilled. I mean, I could say that for you right now. That, that me being here, sharing the word of God with you is God's promise as being fulfilled. Even though along the way, I wasn't sure if it was this and I wasn't sure it was that and I had this closed door over here and this. But God, when he says something, he means it. And his hand upon your life, there's a promise for you. I recently, a friend of mine, just recently was reconciled with his family. It's a very difficult ordeal, very hard situation. And he was reconciled with his family. So glorious. He posted a picture. He's just so happy. They're all smiling. It's legit. Absolutely the Lord. Um, something that was completely impossible. Uh, it, it, it's not. The picture, they're there. They were there. They had a big service, a celebration. It's a pastor friend of mine. And he didn't wait one year. And he didn't wait three years. And he didn't wait five years. Thirteen years. Thirteen years he waited. And he just didn't wait the faction in his family between his sons and he and his wife was, was very, uh, very bad, very public, very vicious, very vile. A, a whole blog was set up by the son to destroy his dad. 13 years, 13 years. It wasn't a year, it wasn't five years, it was 13 years. And yet God just like that, <laughs> with humility and repentance, the Holy Spirit moving in the midst of them. All of those 13 years is sort of like the prodigal son in a very real way. Let's throw a party. Let's throw a party, and God is doing a work. I was just so encouraged by that. I was so encouraged to see the work of God with my own eyes of someone that I've been watching and praying for for many, many years. I've been watching very carefully what the Lord's doing. That's what's happening with Solomon, except it's an momentous occasion. This is how it went down with my family, and this is what's going on, and, and you're watching history, spiritual history, with the temple being built. Verse 22, So Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel... There is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you, who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants, who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept what you promised. You might want to mark that word. It's just, even if you're hearing it from someone else today, you have kept what you promised. God is going to keep what he promises. Your servant David, my father, verse 24, you have spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. Only if your sons take heed to their way that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true. 
which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be opened toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said my name shall be there, and you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. And may you hear the supplication of your servant, of your people Israel, that when they pray toward this place, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. This is one of the longest prayers recorded for us in the scriptures. The longest of the lips, from the lips of Solomon, for sure. And it's not a speech from a king. It's a prayer of a man. It's not a speech of a king where he's, you know, Solomon didn't have this, but he's not reading it from a teleprompter where he's just going left and reading, right and reading, left and reading. He's, he's very similar in Jesus looking up to heaven, but he places his hands up in submission and he begins to pray publicly, thanking God and rehearsing the faithfulness of God in his prayer before the people. He blesses the people, then he begins to pray. He's going to speak seven different petitions, as you'll see in a moment. Seven different things as he looks backwards upon the faithfulness of God. And he ends it with a forward leaning on the, upon the, God, the mercy of God, lifting up his hands, crying out to the Lord. And then he has a general request in his prayer that God would hear the prayers of his people as he says at the end of verse 30, and when you hear, forgive. And didn't you like verse 27? I have a star next to it. Just thinking of the immensity of God and how huge he is and how foolish it is for us to somehow create idols that replace our worship of the God who doesn't dwell on earth. Even the heaven of heavens cannot continue. You, you are immense and larger than we can even consider. How much less? You don't, you, you're not going to live in this temple. Even though you're going to meet us at the mercy seat, you're, you don't live there. You, you are like Psalm 39. You're everywhere. You're omnipresent. And even at an early stage in the life of Israel, they recognize the immensity of God. And, and isn't it true, and I'm sure you found this to be true, I have, that depending on what we choose to look at in times of trouble will really determine how big we believe God is. Or as one person once said, you can either have a big God and little problems or big problems and a little God. It really depends upon what kind of emphasis we want to place upon the circumstances in our lives. And haven't you found it to be true as well that even the smallest of difficulties can cloud your view of the immense omnipresent God? It's very similar to looking up at the sun and how big the sun is and how, or even the moon at night, how big it's been lately. And knowing how big it is, I didn't look it up scientifically, but how big and huge it is. And you're looking up to it, and you can take your finger, and you can put your finger, which is not very big at all, and you can put it right up to your eyes, and you can block the view of the moon or the sun. As big as it is, you can block it with just your little finger. With our difficulties and our trials, as big as they feel, and as big as they seem, and how all-consuming they can be of our little lives, if we choose, they can cloud out the immensity of our faithful God. 
We'll miss the temple and we'll miss the Ark of the Covenant. We'll miss the cross and the empty tomb because of the difficulties that we're facing. We'll forget about his mercy. We'll forget about him hearing us when we pray, forgiving us, and pouring out his mercy upon us. He says, when, when you hear, verse 30, when you hear us, please forgive us. So let's go through and look at the petitions. In verse 21, or excuse me, 31 and 32 is the first petition. When anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head, and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. Now, I appreciate uh, John Corson from his commentary. He gives words to each of these sections. So I chose to not try to make up new words. I'm just going to use his. So this is a prayer about doubting. So if you're taking notes, this is a petition about doubting. If a man's accused of a crime and there wasn't any evidence, we wouldn't want to doubt God that he will be the judge. And isn't it injustice that really can cause us to doubt that God is just? Why are you letting him get away with it? It doesn't make sense, Lord. It doesn't make sense. You keep me on a short leash, man. You don't let me get away with anything. But this situation, man, why are you letting... And you begin to doubt the Lord. You begin to doubt the Lord when there's injustice. And we can see this in our lives when we lack information about someone and are unsure. Only leaning on the Lord will help. I was talking about this a little bit in our staff meeting this morning with the church side of things. I was saying that as a, as a fellowship family, as believers in the Lord, you know, we need to give each other the benefit of the doubt when accusations come, especially with leaders. Did you know the Bible says to not receive an accusation against an elder except by two or three witnesses? So that you're hearing gossip or you're hearing somebody say something, don't be so quick to hear it and receive it without, well, there has to be a couple of independent witnesses that aren't friends and aren't buddies and haven't been talking about it. And before you believe it, you need to talk to the person that's being accused to make sure you get their side of the story. But one of the ways, one of the ways that we can do that is by just praying that, God, we would give our brothers and sisters the benefit of the doubt. It doesn't mean that, that, we're, that they're not doing what they're doing, or it doesn't mean it's not true. It just doesn't mean we're quick to judge. It means we give time for the Lord to reveal what we don't see, and we don't doubt God when we find out something that's happening. We go, man, this isn't fair. This isn't just. And, and yet, the Lord is just, and it's just we're dealing with doubt. That is Pastor Ed Taylor on Abounding Grace, and we've been in 1 Kings 8. You can hear it again online at calvaryaurora.org. Ed, as Solomon is praying here, thanking God and looking back on the faithfulness of God, I thought it would be an opportune time for us to do the same. Could you take a moment right now to do that? Larry, I'd be honored uh, because we are so grateful for the faithfulness of God. And so, Father, thank you in abundance. I mean, the words thank you, God, just don't seem to really convey uh, what we want to say to you for your continued love and care and faithfulness to us. I'm so grateful that you promised that what you began in us, you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, that we can't lose our salvation, that we can't walk away from it, that you have promised in giving new life, that you have sealed 
us with the Holy Spirit, a seal that cannot be broken. That not only in the new covenant do you tell us that you will perfect that, or that you will complete what you've begun in us, but also in the old covenant, because you're the God that doesn't change. You said that you'll perfect that which concerns us. So, Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you have done, all that you're doing, and all that's yet to come. We yield our lives to you, and thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. At Abounding Grace, we're committed to bringing the truths of God's Word to the radio every day, but we can't do it alone. We look to our listeners to help us provide these daily studies. And today, when you give a donation of $25 or more, we will send you Jesus Revolution by Greg Laurie and Ellen Vaughn. You'll be encouraged as you hear how God transformed an unlikely generation and how He can most certainly do it again. Call us right now at 877-30-GRACE or turn to calvaryaurora.org. If you're writing, here's our address, Abounding Grace, 18900 East Hamden Avenue, Aurora, Colorado, 80013. Then join us next time when we'll pick up what we left off in 1 Kings here on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Chapel Aurora.